You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, two listeners of the show join me as guests, Daniel Isles and Andres Bustamante. They share how new investors and everyday people can get started in real estate without a lot of money. We talk about how they got started, how investing has changed their lives, and some of their deals so far. Daniel and his wife started investing in 2019 and purchased nine units in their first year investing. He also documents their real estate journey on YouTube and TikTok. Andres got his real estate license at the age of 19, but didn't become an investor until he was 23. He got his first house hack in 2020 and now owns four properties in his personal portfolio. I'm excited about this one because Daniel and Andres' stories are great examples of how everyday people can succeed in real estate. And this is the first time I've had listeners of the show as guests. I've said it before. Success is going to be different for each of us. For some people, they can build real estate empires with hundreds of millions of dollars in valuation. For others, it's going to look like owning a few cash flowing rental properties that just cover your living expenses and help put you on the path to the life you want. I think today's episode is going to be a great eye opener for any millennial or newbie real estate investor who's thinking about how the journey ahead might be difficult. Sometimes, A lot can happen in just a year, and it sets a great precedent for how you will want to approach your life goals and getting into real estate. Lastly, before we get into the show, a quick housekeeping note. You may have noticed that this is a real estate 101 episode in the Millennial Investing feed. I mentioned in last week's episode, both on Real Estate 101 and on Millennial Investing, that the two shows would be combined into the same feed. So that's why you're seeing this Real Estate 101 episode here. Going forward, the Real Estate 101 show, the one that you're listening to right now, will be released here in this feed on Mondays, and the Millennial Investing Show will be unchanged and still will be released every Wednesday. If this is your first time listening to the Real Estate 101 show, welcome. I really hope you guys enjoy it. If you've been listening to the show for a while on the original Real Estate Podcast feed, Welcome back to the show, and thank you for coming with us over to the new feed. I really appreciate it. If anyone has any questions about the transition or any of the content that we ever talk about on the shows, the best place to reach me personally is on Instagram. My username is the Robert Leonard. That's spelled out T-H-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-L-E-O-N-A-R-D. All right, now... Without further delay, let's get into this week's episode with Daniel Isles and Andres Bustamante. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have a listener of the show. I'm excited to have him on, have him here to share his story. Hope it's relatable for you guys. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, Robert. Thanks so much for having me on. Really glad to be here. Tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, and why you got into real estate. So I started investing in real estate in 2019 after reading a bunch of books on real estate and really being inspired to invest. So I learned that like something like 
of the world's millionaires were created uh, with real estate. And I already had a lot of experience in accounting and finance. I know that you have a similar experience more in the corporate environment. My education came mostly from working in a boutique accounting consulting firm where I worked mostly with construction contractors. And then I also had a lot of personal experience with credit cards. Um, I've got over a dozen credit cards and I use them to travel for free. But in the process of figuring out how to like legally hack the credit card point system, I also learned a lot about how different types of banks work and where in the banking system there can be flexibility in their rules and what type of banks would allow me to do different kinds of things with either small business loans to help my clients or in my case with real estate. And I use this knowledge in addition to what I learned from those dozen of real estate books to buy over a million dollars of real estate in that first year investing. Before we started recording this episode, you and I were talking about how you went on a six-month sprint of reading 50 books. First, how did you even read that many books in six months while comprehending it all? And second, what were some of your favorite books that you read out of those 50? So I started that year with almost a month vacation in Mexico. The travel was paid thanks to my credit card points. But during that vacation, I tore through this huge book list that I'd just been accumulating over time and wanting to read, but never actually following through to read any of those books. And when I got home from vacation, I kept up that reading habit in the morning, reading the books, and then listening to them on my drive home from work. And uh, I averaged about two books per week, working a full 40 hours a week, which isn't unreasonable for, I don't think, almost anyone to get through that many books as long as they have that schedule in their, um, in their time and place. And I was able to recall most of what I read from the books just by being able to highlight certain parts of text that really resonated with me in my Kindle, which made it very easy to search after the fact. And then if I was listening to an audiobook, for example, in the car, I would just quickly, using my iPhone, make a verbal note, um, record it, and then use the speech to text to be able to make those notes and then reference at a later time. And I think overall, I retained a good bit of information from each book. But I think the most valuable thing that I really gained from the experience was just the one or two pieces of information that really resonated with me from each book and allowed me to make a very valuable, very um, important decision either in business or in my real estate adventures. And this is really the 80-20 principle at work where 80% of the value I received came from just 20% of the content I read. And it's okay that I can't really recall every single fact that I read from every single book just because there were so many books, because I still am getting 80% of that value just by highlighting some of my favorite parts from each book. What were some of your favorites? So one of my favorites was the 80-20 principle by Richard Koch. It really allowed me to get into the right mindset that I don't need to extract every piece of information and memorize the entire book reading it, but rather I can just get the value from that book and move on to the next one. And other than that, I just read a lot of real estate books, which really helped me understand the technicalities of real estate since I hadn't invested in it before. And I didn't really have anyone to mentor me or guide me through the real estate investment process. I love audiobooks as well. So I was able to read quite a few books. It was in 2019, I read 60 or 70 books and in a year or so. So when you consider 50 in six months, it's not quite as many, but I was able to read a lot because I had about an hour commute each way to work as well. So two hours a day in the car, five days a week, typically, you're able to go through a lot of audiobooks. And 
once you listen to them for a while, at least for me, I was able to listen to them on 1.5x speed, sometimes even 2x speed. And so you're going through an eight-hour book in four hours. That's really only two days. So you could get through a, two books a week or sometimes even more. So that's that worked for me. I'm a big fan of the 80-20 principle. I actually haven't read any books about it yet. I've only read articles and done a little bit of research online about it. But it's a principle that I love and sounds like I need to pick up that book. The 80-20 principle articles really do explain the entirety of the book. And the book just goes on to list several examples of where this is at work or maybe different permutations from that 80-20 principle where it's the 90-10 or the 99-1. But either way, extracting as much value as you can with the least bits of text possible, I think uh, really helped me out there. Not highlighting the whole book, but just getting the few key points to where I can use that information and benefit from it. I had never really thought of... Like I said, I'm a big fan of the 80-20 rule, but I'd never really thought of applying it to books. I typically only apply that to business or investing. I tend to think about, okay, in my podcast business, what are the 20% of things that I can do that I need to focus on today? They're going to drive 80% of the results. But that's a really good point about, about the books. And I might need to think about how I approach reading books going forward, applying the 80-20 principle. Absolutely. Those books that you read, those 50 books, they must have been pretty powerful because you went on to purchase, like you said, over a million dollars in real estate in just your first year, which encompassed about nine units. And you only used $23,000 of your own money. I mentioned this in the intro. I wanted to bring on a guest like you because you weren't rich to start and you were working a relatively normal accounting job, yet you were still able to accomplish the real estate successes that I just mentioned that you mentioned. I think that's going to show the audience that anyone can do it too. And I think it'll be super relatable for everybody. So let's break down the 1.1 million in real estate that you bought. Where did you start and what was the first deal you bought? So I started with one of the most powerful loans available in the United States. That's the FHA insured loan. And I truly believe that the FHA insured loan is one of the most powerful wealth building tools available to the public. One of the most powerful aspects of real estate investing is that you have uh, the ability to invest and buy those assets with leverage using a small amount of money to control a large amount of assets. And the FHA loan provides more leverage than almost any other loan product available. Allows someone to purchase an investment property with only three and a half percent of the total purchase price as a down payment. So my first property that I purchased was a duplex that I bought for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars with less than nine thousand dollars of a total down payment. And um, one of the stipulations to the FHA loan program is that you have to live in the unit, which actually worked really well for me because I was able to practice being a landlord and kind of getting comfortable with the idea of owning a rental property. Because I was just living in one unit and you know, my next door neighbor was the only thing that I had to manage. But by renting out that other unit, I was able to cover the mortgage completely and get rid of probably the biggest expense I had at the time and the biggest expense that most people have, which is my housing costs. And even this first step done correctly can remove the biggest expense in your life, the housing costs. Like one purchase with an FHA loan, one property, and you'll never have to pay rent or a mortgage ever again. And that is just such a crazy, powerful thought. And I think that that's just like the average outcome if you buy a single duplex. If you use an FHA loan to buy a fourplex with three tenants all paying you rent instead of just one, 
you suddenly have all of your housing costs for the rest of your life covered, likely a good bit of extra cash flow every single month. And at the end of the 30-year loan, you have an asset that has appreciated likely close to, if not more than a million dollars owned outright by you that was paid for by the tenants. It's just this crazy like mathematical way that, that real estate works. And it's extremely, extremely powerful. And I think for all the high schoolers and college students listening to this, this is one of the most slept on opportunities available to you if you're looking to invest in your future. I would even say, even if you're past college, it can still be a very powerful strategy. And, and the strategy you're talking about is house hacking, leveraging an FHA loan. But I'm 25. So I've been out of college for about three, almost four years. My birthday's next week. So four or five years, I've been out of college. And I'm still house hacking. This, I'm on my third house hack. I just closed on it last month. So if you can do it out of high school or college, the earlier you can do it, the better. But just because you're listening to this, you're 25, 30, that does not mean you can't do it. Definitely you can. I agree with what Daniel said. I think this is hands down the most powerful strategy for new investors to get started. I think wealth building wise, you're just able to generate so much wealth from owning real estate as well as getting rid of your largest expense. And then on the education side, you're able to learn how to be a landlord. So if you want to buy rental properties, you already have a big step in the right direction. You said you put about $9,000 down on that property. How did you cover closing costs? Is that included in the 9000 or was that on top of it? So with the FHA loan and kind of the current state of the market, it's pretty common to have the seller cover all of the closing costs, which is um, a pattern that I followed with all of my other properties. It was always negotiated in the deal that the seller would cover all of the closing costs or that some of the closing costs that weren't covered by the seller were lumped into the loan and that my uh, down payment, my 3.5% down payments would cover those closing costs as well as a higher loan cost, but it's not something that I'd have to pay for the next 30 years. So it, it, it's just amortized into the loan. I love that you mentioned that because I just talked about that on a couple episodes ago and that's called seller concessions or a seller credit. And I personally think that house hacking is a strategy that's slept on by most people. But I think as an investor, for people that are already investing, I think seller credits are super overlooked. I've done seller credits on every single real estate deal that I've done to date, whether it's rentals or house hacks. And I think it's a great way to be able to get into deals for less money. So if you want to learn a little bit more about seller credits, go back to the episode with Philip Michael. I gave a good breakdown on how I use seller credits to get into my most recent deal. Can you break down for us on that duplex? Where was it so that people can get an idea of the market and the opportunities available? And then also your mortgage costs and the rent that you were able to receive? So the property was purchased uh, in Alaska. I live in Alaska. I invest in Alaska. And it was purchased in North Pole, Alaska. That's literally the city. That's what it's called. That's where I kind of grew up. And it was a $250,000 duplex. It was an, like an upstairs and a downstairs. The downstairs rented out for about $1,925. Uh, and the total cost of the mortgage was only $1,600. So there was a little bit of cash flow. You could think of it that way every single month. But in reality, the $1,600 only covered PITI, which is principal, interest, taxes, and insurance, meaning that there were some utility bills as water that I needed for and heating fuel because we are in Alaska and it's very cold. So really that extra little bit of cash flow didn't go into my pocket and it was just paid to the utilities. But it did leave me in a position where living upstairs in the unit that now rents for about 1550 
I was getting my rent completely covered. It was a beautiful stairs spot, really one of the favorite spots that I've ever lived in. And uh, $1,500 that I was able to get completely for free every single month because I was able to purchase the asset rather than just renting a spot for $1,550 every month. And so you did keep that property when you moved out? Yep. I did keep the property when I moved out. I stayed there for quite a while while I kind of fixed things up on myself and uh, tried to experiment a little bit with landlording, setting up the processes and rules required, making sure that I'm following all applicable laws. All of that part of the business definitely takes some time. It's not that you can just suddenly buy a property and start making all this money. There's a lot of work that goes into it. But living in the unit, having full control over what goes on, being very aware of what my tenant is doing, they're not doing, what the state of the property is, was very valuable for me when I was just starting out. House hacking is often covered from the perspective of being able to reduce your living costs, which I think is one of the most valuable points of house hacking. But the piece that isn't often talked about is when you leave that property. Like you said, you were already technically making $300 a month in cash flow, or, or at least the rents were that much more than the mortgage. You had some utilities that you had to cover and things like that. But just in general, the rent for one unit was already $300 over the mortgage. And then when you were able to leave, all that additional rent that you were able to generate from that second unit was essentially cash flow for you. And now you have an amazing rental that you only had to put $9,000 down on that you can hold for the next 30 years. That's a great cash flowing asset. And you can look at it this way. The almost $1,600 that I was receiving in cash flow every single month after moving out could have been used to buy literally the same exact priced asset, a $250,000 house with a mortgage and a, and a mortgage payment of $1,600, meaning I could have moved out, bought myself a primary residence, a house all for myself that I love, that's $250,000. And it would have been completely covered by that first FHA that I bought. Such a that just illustrates how powerful that this strategy can be. And can you imagine if instead of buying the single family, you buy a second house act and do the same thing, or you buy a third one, and then before you know it, you have three assets that are generating fifteen hundred dollars a piece. Now you have forty five hundred dollars in three years of cash flow, and you only had to put nine thousand dollars down on each one. And that is why house hacking is so powerful. Daniel, where did you go from your first deal? What was your second deal? What did that look like? So the process that you just explained where you house hack again and again, I think that's a great strategy. But I felt pretty comfortable with the real estate management aspect of investing. And so I decided to kind of turn up that dial a little bit using what I knew about accounting and small business banking to take the investing to the next level. So my second property was a duplex that I never lived in, and it was purchased with absolutely no money down. The $1,000 earnest deposit that I paid to show that I was interested in actually following through and purchasing the property, I got back when I went to the closing table to acquire the property. Like I literally left the closing table um, after getting the house with a check in my hand. And this was done through a series of strategies that like, I really need to coin a name for this. I just don't know what to call it. Maybe the listeners listening to this can, can hear me out here, uh, hear me explain it, and then maybe just like hit me up on social telling me what they think I should call this strategy. But the first step in the process was getting a property that was under market value. So my wife found the property listed at $175,000. And it was just on Zillow, but it had been sitting there for eight months. And the experienced real estate investors listening to this, ones that have been through their couple of years, know that if a property is sitting on the market for eight months, it is going to be a crazy, crazy good deal. And it absolutely was. So I was able to negotiate that property 
by having an amazing inspector go in there and just write this super long, I think it was like 17 page inspection report. It was an absolute horror novel of every single thing wrong with the property. And it was a very powerful negotiation tactic. And it allowed me to get that property for $130,000. So it was originally listed eight months ago at 175. I was able to get it at 130, meaning that $45,000 price difference came strictly from having a great inspector and being able to negotiate on that property. So I got the seller to pay all of the closing costs like we talked about before. And that was just pretty common in today's market. Nothing unusual there. The second part of the strategy, the second part of the strategy required getting a flexible financial institution to be able to fund this property for me. And that was a, actually a little bit more challenging. So I knew that none of the big banks would go for this. None of the um, commercial banks that you see like in the Super Bowl commercials, um, they don't do any kind of flexible lending. So I didn't even bother talking to them. I don't know if I can say the bank names here on the podcast, but everyone knows exactly who I'm talking about. The people that run commercials on the, uh, on the TV stations, if anyone even listens to the TV anymore, but those kinds of banks, completely useless. So I instead went to the credit unions and the local banks. I knew from my small business experience that the flexibility came from these smaller lenders who owned the loan rather than selling it out to the highest bidder. And in the real estate world, these are called portfolio lenders. I wanted a very specific portfolio lender that could work with me on a very specific quality of the loan, which is that I would be able to get a loan on the greater of the appraised value or the purchase price of the property. I knew that usually banks like to lend on the lesser of because it keeps them safe in the event of a default. They just have a little bit more room in the deal. So they prefer to lend on the great on the lesser of the appraised value or purchase price. But I instead was able to find a credit union who lended to me on the greater of the purchase price or appraised value. And I called dozens of banks to figure this out. It really took a long time finding the perfect credit union. But once I found them, I was able to use them for my next deal. So it really was worth the effort. The next step was to get a high appraised value for the property. That was really easy because I negotiated it from 175 down to 130. It appraised at 150, which was really great for me. And where a regular bank would have been able to fund this property purchase of 130 with a loan based on the 130 property price, maybe at about uh, an 80%, 85% loan to value, I could use this credit union to get a bigger loan by having that 85% LTV be based on the appraised value. So this means I was getting a loan for the property that I was purchasing at $130,000 for $127,500. And then after a quick phone call with my super flexible credit union, I was actually able to convince them to get me a loan for $130,000, rounding it up a little bit. And I know that the $2,500 down payment wouldn't have stopped me from purchasing the house. I had $2,500. It was just like so close. And I was going for that weird flex of not having to pay any money at all which ended up being pretty cool. And then of course, I mentioned the seller paid for all the closing costs. So I was able to acquire this duplex with just negotiation and an understanding of how the system worked. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. 
I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. When you were calling around to all these different credit unions, what types of questions were you asking them? What were you diving into or digging into to figure out if they were going to be able to offer the product or service that you needed? So I created a super long Excel spreadsheet of all the bank names, all the phone numbers, not just in my state, but in a lot of the states down in, we call them the lower 48 states, the other states basically. And I was calling a bunch of smaller credit unions, a bunch of lower banks, uh, smaller banks. And I just went right for the kill. I asked them straight up whether they would be able to offer me a loan based on the greater of the appraised value or the purchase price. And usually this is something that even the, the person picking up the phone could answer. You know, They would quickly talk to a um, loan specialist and I would get a yes or no. Uh, I tried to do as many as I could through email. Many of them wanted me to phone call So it took a couple of days. But again, this was an investment that I was making in my network to have for the next several properties as well. And so you were able to find a credit union that wasn't in your state or even city that was able to offer you this product or service? Yeah. I know that credit unions usually like to have membership within their local area, but they didn't seem to mind. It seemed like a great deal to them. And to be honest, I don't even remember what state it was in. It was either Ohio or Idaho, or one of those. I've done a few deals with them. I, I don't really look at where they're from. I, I just know that they are awesome to work with. And the loan officer that I have is absolutely incredible. She's been so great through all this, super flexible. So I can't complain. Yeah, I guess the specific state doesn't really matter. Is I guess the point is that they weren't in your state, which I find interesting because a lot of, a lot of the lenders that I've worked with have wanted to be local to the property. 
And I know you mentioned the membership eligibility for credit unions, which is a specific feature of credit unions, but just lenders in general. I, I got a bank loan for a different rental property that I own, and they would only lend on the property if it was in the state in which they were located. So it's interesting to hear that you're able to find a bank not only to offer you a non-normal, abnormal product or service that most banks can't or credit unions can't, but also not even geographically anywhere near the property. And I have had issues with banks just recently turning me down because I moved across cities across the state. It's about 300 miles away. So I understand why they don't service uh, the loan that I'm looking for now. But yes, this credit union was extremely flexible at the cost of a really high interest rate. I will admit the interest rate was, I think, 7%, which for a short period of time before I was able to refinance into a better loan worked absolutely great for me. I still made tons of money with the cash flow. And really, I think that's how anyone would approach the same situation. If the numbers still work out, even if it's a 12% interest rate, even if it's a 15% interest rate, it's better than not getting the deal at all because at the end, you still make money. That was exactly going to be my next question was, what were the terms of those loans? Were they 30-year fixed debt? I mean, it sounds like they were a higher interest rate, so it could have been 7%, but was it still 30-year fixed debt? No, it wasn't. So again, this was a portfolio loan. This is essentially an investment that the credit union themselves were making with their own money. So they needed very different terms from what's common in the mortgage business, which is a 30-year loan. I instead got a 20-year term with a 5-year balloon at 7%. So looking at it from like a comparison perspective, it's a terrible loan. And of course, there are worse loans. There are hard money loans, which are way more expensive. But for my purpose of purchasing this property and acquiring it, it was great. And after the fact, I could go on to either sell the property, um, I, could, I could flip it, or I could refinance under better terms, which is what I did with a couple of my properties. So it sounds like they went through their... Typically, if it's a portfolio lender and they're offering a 25, usually it's a commercial loan is what I'm used to hearing. And it sounds like that's what you did. So it was a 15% down actually that I did. So I got an 85% LTV, which again is really unusual. But since they were a portfolio lender, they were super flexible with me. And like I mentioned, they even adjusted the total loan amount after the fact from the 127.5, which we had both agreed upon, to 130 just as a, as a rounding favor. Walk us through the refinance process. What did that look like when you went to more conventional debt? So in the process of refinancing, I also made an effort to be able to mitigate my risk a little bit more. Having these types of loans, which are almost like hard money loans, really aren't ideal. And being able to refinance them into something that is a little bit more stable for a longer term perspective definitely kind of managed my risk a little bit more. But at the same time, I used that opportunity of having to refinance to lever up just a little bit more. So despite not having any of my own money into the deal, I did have equity in the deal. And that allowed me to both be exposed to risk, also allow myself to get, I could say, into even a little bit more debt to actually mitigate that risk. So my risk from these properties was that if a boiler gave out, if the roof leaked, if like a pipe burst, I would still have a lot to lose because I have the whole property to lose. It's technically under my name, even though I didn't pay my own money for it. I have equity in it. I'm responsible for taking care of the property. So what I ended up doing to uh, refinance one of my properties was that I made a few strategic upgrades, paint, carpet, trim, the easy stuff that adds a lot of value. 
in an appraisal situation, I had the property appraised for a much higher value. For example, that $130,000 duplex that I talked about after a couple thousand dollars worth of upgrades was appraised not at 150, which it was at first, but rather at 200,000. And by refinancing, I was able to get into a better loan product with, uh, I believe, a 30-year term, or maybe it's 20. I, I honestly can't remember, at a 5% interest rate, which is way better, no balloon. And I ended up actually both making money from the refinance that I get to put in my pocket. It was uh, tens of thousands of dollars. On top of that, I also now have a higher cash flow because the interest rate and the loan terms are a lot better. Was there a seasoning period between the small credit union loan that you had and the refinance? So the refinance was with, a, with another small credit union. And I did reach out to several banks that required a six-month seasoning period. It's not something that I wanted to go for with one of the properties that I was refinancing. And the credit union was able to work around this. They didn't require the seasoning period because again, they're flexible. And I'm assuming they were lending their own assets to be able to refinance this property, not selling out to uh, an investor or a government institution. After that second property, where did you go from there? How did you acquire the rest of your nine units? So the third property was another similar situation where I used my flexible credit union to kind of avoid paying a down payment. And then the fourth property after that was actually my wife's FHA loan when we had to move for work. In total, the only like actual money down that I had to put to be able to buy this over $1.1 million in, in real estate assets were the two FHA loan down payments, which totaled a little over $22,000. You also mentioned to me before the show that since you acquired that $1.1 million in real estate, you've rebalanced your portfolio a bit to manage some risk. Why were you concerned about risk and what steps did you take to mitigate it? So as I mentioned with that risk, even though I didn't pay money for the properties, I still had my own money on the line. If a terrible disaster happened with one of my properties that I wasn't able to fix quickly enough because I didn't have the cash or some other reason, I wanted to make sure that I had the resources available to me to make that repair and to get out of there with not a lot of terrible other debt like credit card debt or whatever uh, required to usually fix up properties. So in mitigating that risk, I was able to refinance uh, one of those properties, get about $15,000 out that I would have as a safety net in case a huge disaster happened like a flood or the boiler gave out and everything froze up or just even if a tenant trashed the property. I would have that $15,000 from the refinance just by switching loans and kind of uh, restructuring the debt to be able to use at my advantage. Another way that I managed risk was that one of the properties that I bought, the one that I the first property that I bought with $0 was a little bit of a higher risk property. It was a C-class property, which generally means that it's a little bit older. It requires a lot more repairs and maintenance. And the demographic of tenants that usually rent out those properties is slightly more challenging to manage. And it honestly wasn't really worth the effort. So I mitigated my, my opportunity cost and having to work a lot with that property for seemingly a lot of cash flow on paper, but really not enough to make it worth the effort. And I was able to trade that C-class property for a property that I bought as a primary residence for my wife. It's uh, essentially used that $130,000 house that I bought for free, which then appraised later at 200000 
and I traded it up for a primary residence worth about half a million. I know that the cash flow and equity that we earn from real estate definitely covered the down payment and the upgrades from that new house. But I can admit, like all honesty, it probably wasn't the best financial decision considering the opportunity cost and what I could have done with that money instead in the stock markets, for example, these last few months. But at the same time, it was a lifestyle decision. It made my wife extremely happy to be able to have this beautiful house right next to her parents. And I think it was well worth the, uh, the opportunity uh, of, of a lifetime to be able to do that. Where do you want to take your real estate portfolio from here? What are some of your long-term goals? Long-term, I definitely want to buy more properties with as little money down as possible. I think it's really fun. And hopefully in the future, I will be buying more B and A-class properties, which are a lot easier to manage at the cost of less cash flow. I'm fine with less cash flow. I, I feel very secure with the current revenue that I'm making from my real estate investments. And more so thinking long-term in the future, I want to be able to purchase properties and ride the principal paydown and appreciation wave that those give to me with a lot less management involvement, either from me or from the management company, and just buy these higher priced units, which of course are going to be a lot more expensive. But that just means that my investment is going to be bigger every single time that I purchase a new property. For a new or aspiring real estate investor that's listening to the show today who might have big real estate goals, or even they just want to get their first or second deal done so they can get started, what's the best piece of advice that you can give them? I definitely think education is the greatest limiting factor preventing your success in real estate. Uh, It's definitely not the money. You don't need much of that or even any at all. You don't have to be born rich to invest in real estate. I just really think that it's important to be able to recognize the resources you have and properly implement those. Um, And I think most of the people listening to this podcast are already well on their way to getting there. Listening to this podcast, obviously, they show some kind of interest in this. And the people listening right now, you should probably listen to a couple more episodes after this one just to keep the ball rolling. For those listening that are interested in learning more about you and your strategies and might want to connect with you to discuss them, where's the best place for them to go? You can connect with me on my socials. Uh, I'm pretty big on TikTok and YouTube. Just search Daniel Isles. That's uh, Daniel I-L-E-S. Also, I'll show up in the search and I'd love to help you out with whatever questions you guys have. Anyone who is interested in connecting with Daniel further after the episode and wants to learn more from resources that we talked about with Daniel, they'll all be in the show notes below. Daniel, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. So as I mentioned in the intro, we actually have two guests today. That was the first half with Daniel Isles. And now we're going to get into the second half of the episode with Andres Bustamante. We'll get right into the conversation with him here. Andres, thanks so much for being a listener of the show. And thanks for joining me today as a guest. Welcome to the show. Yes, sir. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate you having me on the show. Let's start the conversation by learning a little bit about you. Briefly tell us your story and where you're at today. Perfect. All right. So my name is Andres Bustamante. I am 24 years old from El Paso, Texas. I moved to Austin when I was 19 to go to the University of Texas at Austin. I originally thought I was going to do supply chain management. Turns out I didn't do that. When I was at school, I became a leasing agent at the age of 19. And my first sale as a leasing agent was actually a $1 million condo. So that was pretty awesome when I was a junior. With the money that I made through leasing, I was actually able to pay for my college, 
and also pay for my housing. So that was great. I learned the power of real estate and just in general, having the time that I chose to do whatever I wanted. And so with this, when I graduated, I decided to do real estate full-time. I am now a real estate agent in Austin, Texas, and I have three investment properties. You mentioned to me before the show that your experience studying abroad in France made you realize that you wanted to be able to manage your own money and your own time. But I think there's a lot of different ways that you could do this. Why did you choose getting your real estate license as that option? It's pretty crazy. I am really a big believer in like the law of attraction and just setting the right vibrations and setting that out to the world and something will eventually come to you. So with that, I feel like initially I wanted to do lifeguarding because I, I was a lifeguard when I was 16. And I was going to do that lifeguarding at UT Austin. I ended up not having the, the license. I had to renew it. So a month later, my friend tells me, tells me, it's like, dude, there's this real estate course that you should take it. I feel like you'd be good at it. And you should be interviewed by this company, Housing Scout. So I was like, you know what? Let me do it. I got interviewed and I got the job. It was kind of luck on that part. But also at the same time, now that I think about it, once I did get my license, it was great because it offered me the flexibility to choose when I wanted to work. And also just in general, if I worked hard, I would get a lot of money through leasing. So I felt like, I mean, right now it's just the flexibility and the, the opportunity to choose whenever I wanted to work. And the money I make is based on the effort I put into it. Now that you've become an investor, and we'll talk about how you made that transition, but now that you've become an investor, have you found that having your real estate license has actually helped you be an investor? Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, with this, through leasing, I really learned how to deal with property management companies whenever I would bring clients for leasing. The first two years were a little hard because I was just like, who am I to bring 23-year-olds, 24-year-olds from UT Austin with their family and tell them about apartments? So at first, I was a little nervous about that. But then I started going junior and senior year. I, didn't really, I wasn't really afraid anymore. And I got a lot of clients with that. So I mean, with this, I really learned how to speak the real estate lingo. And I mean, from there, I really knew a deal when I saw one with apartments. And that also goes to houses for sale now, because I just learned so much through those four years that it eventually got into that full-time sales position. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree. 
expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. As you were nearing the end of your college career, did you consider a traditional route, the traditional career? You mentioned you were studying supply chain. Or at that point, had you really just been dead set on real estate sales? I had plenty of internships while I was in college. I had a supply chain internship in Juarez in Mexico. That was awesome because I just learned so much over there and how underpaid people in Mexico are, unfortunately. I learned a lot about work ethic there. And I also learned that I didn't want to do supply chain. So then I switched over to international business because I had lived in France and I got to go to France again when I was 20. That was an amazing experience. And I mean, through this, I was like, what does international business kind of offer me? I was going to go the commercial real estate route, got an internship with that. And I knew that firstly, I had to be a financial analyst and that was a set salary with set hours. And I wasn't really a big fan of that. So I was like, you know what? Let me do the real estate sales side for six months. If I don't do well, then I'll just go to commercial real estate and financial analyst. But what I loved about it was that it's really scared me to the point where I was like, if I do not succeed on this, I'm going to go to the financial analyst. That's a eight to five job and that I'm earning this salary each month. So that kind of really pushed me to succeed in the real estate sales aspect. How did you transition from just being an agent to also being an investor? Let's walk through your first deal and the hurdles you had to overcome to get that deal done. Initially, when I graduated college, it was in May 2019. And I kind of wanted to figure out what I, what I really wanted to do with my life. So that summer, I learned a lot about bigger pockets. I learned about, a lot about real estate investing and this and that. And I had learned that in order to succeed faster, you need a great mentor. So I listened to Bigger Pockets and I heard Diego Corzo's episode. He said he was in Austin. I reached out to him, told him my goals. We got to chat a lot. And in the end, he was like, dude, I want you on my team. And I was super excited. So now I'm, I'm part of his team. And he really helped me understand the house hacking aspect of it. So my first deal, I would analyze like three deals per day, every weekday. So I'd analyze maybe like 30 deals a day a week through the bigger pockets calculator, help me understand the house hacking aspect even more. And 
I remember one day Diego was talking to me. We were doing my first contract for sales, and he was like, "Hey, the sales rep for Dr. Horton just told me that a home got off contract, and you can get this new build home for just a thousand dollars in earnest money because it's a new build. It's not a resale." So I went the next day because this was like at 11 p.m. Went the next day, looked at the home, did the numbers very quickly in my head because I already had the experience. And I got it under contract like 30 minutes after I had seen it. How much did you buy the property for and how much did you have to put down? The property, was, the purchase price was 286 and I decided to put 10% down. I could have put 3% down though as a first time home buyer with a conventional loan. Why did you choose 10%? I chose 10% because the numbers made more sense. And also because back then I was like, I have plenty of money in the bank. You know what? I don't want it to be just resting there. Looking back, I could have done 5% or 7%. But I mean, I had the money there and I was excited. I was like, you know what? Screw it. Let's just do 10%. And the numbers work even better with that, obviously, because it's a lower mortgage. What is your mortgage currently? And what do you receive in monthly rent? So the mortgage is 1850 And my three tenants are paying me 2150 Then looking into vacancy and whatnot, miscellaneous costs, it's like 220 in cash flow. The fact that it's a new build, I don't really have to take into account cap expenditures or any big expenses, you know, because there's warranties on new builds. That's one of the big advantages of new builds. How did you get your credit score and your credit report ready to buy a property by yourself at just 23? So with this, I feel like thankfully when I went to France, my parents gave me a credit card. So I started building my credit score there. And I mean, from there, I was always diligent about paying on time. I had heard someone say, it's like, you need to pay on time. It's bad to have a bad credit score. And I think that just stuck with me lucky enough because I have some friends that, have a, that don't have the best credit score. And that really hurts them whenever they're looking to buy a car or buy a home or anything. So just getting a credit card early on and remembering that advice from, I don't know who it was, but thankfully they told me that advice to just pay on time and whatnot. So that was great. How long did it take you to get your credit to a point where you could actually get approved for a mortgage? Well, on this, I've heard that it really takes about five months ever since you get your credit, your credit card and start paying and whatnot. But I mean, for me, I've had it since I was like 17. So I mean, through that time, I was able to get the credit score to where it was. And also the lender, he's been my preferred lender for quite some time, Dio Corzo, and I work with him a lot. So it's, it's a lot about building the relationships with the lenders. And sometimes they can let some things fly and not really as much. But if you have a relationship with a lender, that definitely helps to, for your chances of getting pre-approved. And so did you only have one credit card building your credit score? Or when you were 17, did you get that one credit card? And then as you neared 23, you added more lines of credit? I had that credit card. And then I was also a... I forgot the term, but it's when your like, parents put you on their... An, Authorized user. Yeah, authorized user. So that really helps a lot, actually. And through that, I had an even better credit score. Through the authorized user, I was kind of writing on my parents' credit score on everything that they were paying, their debt to income, the amount of time that they had had the credit card in the bank, which helps a lot. So I had two, two credit scores, like not two credit scores, but two credit cards that would help my credit. For your second deal, you were considering doing a house hack with your brother. We've talked that this deal has changed a little bit from the original strategy, but the original strategy was to go on at 50-50 with a partner. 
What did that structure look like and how did you split a primary residence deal with a partner? Yeah, so with this, I really, really wanted to get another home right after I had gotten my primary. And my unfair advantage is that, that I know the market really well in Austin and also that I know a deal right when I see one and that I have leasing experience so I can get tenants. So I was like, who can be the primary resident that can get this home for a lower down payment than an investment property, which would be 20%, and also for a better interest rate? So I was like, dude, well, my brother, he was my, he was my renter at the moment, and he had seen the power of house hacking. So I told him he was set. We legit looked at like two homes and he was like, dude, I trust your judgment. Got that property. We did 50-50, 50% earnest. We were going to do 50% down payment. He was going to be the primary resident, manage the tenants. I was going to get the tenants for him. So that was kind of going to be our work with that. And on this, I mean, pretty straightforward. Get the tenants from Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist and whatnot. That's how I usually get mine or Instagram. And then he would just manage them. I would teach him how to manage them, do the contracts and all that stuff. Were you going to be on the mortgage as well, or was it just going to be your brother? It was just going to be my brother. He qualified as a primary resident. And because I want to get more rental properties, I didn't think it was um, smart to get another mortgage under my name. And so how did that work out with the lender? How were you able to give your brother money to buy the deal? So with this, typically lenders like to see two to three months of bank statements because they want to know where your money's coming from. So I could have given him the money like in hindsight, four months ago, he closed on the home about two weeks ago and there wouldn't have been a problem. But if let's say if it was a month before closing, what I would have told the lender, it's like, I'm giving my brother a gift. I'm going to write you a letter, the lender stating that this is the amount of money that I'm going to give my brother. And that's completely legal in real estate. You can just do a gift to whoever you want stating the money you're giving them so that the bank isn't like, dude, where did this money come from? What is this? You know, where'd you get it? And then how are you going to manage the ownership structure on the back end? How are you going to make sure that you are legally part of the ownership side of the deal? So with this, I mean, since he's my brother, I completely trust him. I know some people say with family, you still have to do a, a contract and all. I'm like, dude, he's my brother. I, I trust him. If he wouldn't have been my brother, though, I would have had an attorney write up a contract and 50-50 for each one. Someone decides to sell the property. Then on that, you have to pay that person's ownership first, and then the property can be yours. So it's 50-50, 50% of the equity paid off, and then done. Walk us through the details of the deal. What type of property is it? Where is it? How much was it? What's it rent for? Things like that. I love this part. So... This property, I love doing four beds by three and a half bathrooms in Austin because I know they cash flow, like for a fact. Because most of these homes I'm getting east of I-35. And this is the area in Austin that's just appreciating like crazy. So with this beforehand, I was doing like four by two and a halves, maybe four by twos. And then I really found that four by three and a half that was perfect because three and a half bathrooms, you have a half bathroom for guests, then you have two other bathrooms that the renters can share. Renters share one and then the other renter gets his own. So that room is charged at $750, let's say. So usually the room that has the bathroom on its own, $750, the other two rooms that share a bathroom are $700. So all in all, that's $2150. And the mortgage is usually with that. I've been seeing mortgages for like $1,800, $1,900 because of interest rates and them being so low. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple with that. The four bedroom structure, once I leave, 
I'm going to keep renting by the room and most likely looking at cash flowing with each property like 900 or maybe a thousand. And I also know what I can rent the whole unit for. This is important knowing those exit strategies and whatnot. So my, my whole house right now can be rented for 2000. That's about 150 in cash flow, which I don't want. So what I'm going to be doing is still renting by the room when I move to my next house hack. One thing that I do love about new builds that I didn't mention is the fact that you get a home under contract without having to bid and you can get lender incentives. If you go with the preferred lender, you get like 2% of, of the home's value, the purchase price towards closing costs and also title policy. That usually amounts to like 6000 to 7000 So then there's also something known as a 10 to 1 warranty, 10 years of structural warranty, two years of HVAC, electric, and plumbing, and one year of craftsmanship. It's huge. I, I just love it. But under contract for like 500 to 3000, I've had clients put their home under contract for 500. And they ride the wave of appreciation because with a new build, usually they take five to eight months to finish construction for that. You get under contract, you don't get until five to eight months. First of all, that's flexibility for someone that's in a lease. And then with that, my home, my second house hack, believe it or not, it's, I got it at 326 under contract. It's now worth 380 and I haven't closed yet. So that's like 54,000 in an instant equity without, without doing anything. Let's talk about that third deal. You're doing another house hack. And what I think is interesting about it is that you actually started the process of buying it quite a bit before your one-year anniversary is up on your other house hack. Tell us a bit how this works and why you did it. On this one, I was just super excited with my first house hack, which I got in April 2020. Can't believe it's 2021 now. It's pretty crazy. So I got it April 2020 and I was just like, I need another one. There, there needs to be another way. So I, uh, from the relationships I'd build with the new builders, because a lot of my clients have gone under contract with them, I was like, you know what? How about I look for a new build that doesn't finish construction until April 2021? Because that means I have my full year of primary residence. In order to get another house hack, you need to have that full year of primary residence. In the home, you get the lower interest rates and you also get to pay the lower down payment. So with that, I learned that there was a four bedrooms by three and a half bathrooms that was selling in June of 2020 that was not going to be finished until April. So I got it under contract in June of 2020 and I've been seeing it being built throughout this time should be closing in about two, three months. And I think it's going to have like 70,000 in equity. So that's just huge. I'm super excited about that one. And I already have the tenants for it. I think house hacks are the most powerful strategy for new investors. So I totally understand why you're doing them. I actually have a similar story. I'm 25 and I'm on my third house hack right now. With your experience as a landlord and as an agent, why haven't you expanded out into other properties like traditional rentals? On this, I kind of really wanted to just see how it was being a landlord right there. And the rentals for me in the Austin market, 20% down. The median price in city of Austin is 441000 So right off the bat, I was like, shoot, this is just so expensive. It was one of my limiting beliefs. It's like, no, I can't afford this because it's going to have to be my money. I didn't really think of creative ways through that. So with this, it's more so because of my limiting, limiting beliefs that I didn't do it and because I was new to the investment game. Now though, actually got an investment property under contract about a month ago. And dude, this is insane. So I got it under contract for $1,000. 
for two ninety seven. It's going to be an Airbnb, three beds by two bathrooms. That same home base price is now selling for, I believe, three hundred and thirty two thousand. So it's like thirty five thousand in appreciation in just one month. And the great thing about this as well is that this is the first phase of that area. New builds usually have phases. So in one phase they do like a hundred homes. Phase two they do a hundred more. So I mean. Single family homes are all based on the comparables approach. What the same, what the same homes, similar homes have sold in the area. So, I mean, that price is going to keep going up with the second phase and even more with the third and fourth and fifth. So, I'm just super excited for that one and excited for starting the Airbnb stuff because I had never done that. I struggled with limiting beliefs a bit when I first got into real estate at a young age. What limiting beliefs did you have and how have you overcome them? I still have them once in a while. It's just like, I'm too young or maybe I don't deserve this. And just like, I don't know. I, f- I feel like sometimes it's the fact that, uh, yeah, I'm not good enough. I think that's one of the, the bigger ones that back in the day was, was pretty big. And now I've, known, I've learned to control it. I mean, I feel it's just what you feed your mind, being grateful. I'm super grateful for a lot of things. And I know that being grateful for things in the morning, I do like three things I'm grateful for. I do my affirmations every morning, visualizations. I feel like having a morning routine really helped me be like, be me on my own time. I wake up at five in the morning, drink a cup of water, exercise, affirmations, meditations, gratitudes, visualize and read. And that like me time really helped me focus on the mindset and just like small things I'm grateful for. Like, dude, seriously, just being able to see, I take that for granted because I've always been able to see, you know, or being able to hear or smell and being more grateful for that. And just coming from an area of gratitude has helped me so much. And I think if I would have, if I would have heard myself talking about this, like when I was in college, I would have been like, what is he saying? But I totally understand why people are crazy about mindset. And I can't believe how important it is. Where do you see yourself going from here? What are your long-term real estate goals? My long-term real estate goals are getting 7,000 in passive income. Originally, it was 10 properties by the age of 27, each of, each of those giving me enough money to get that 7,000 in passive income. But now from talking with people and just kind of letting go of my limiting beliefs, I want to do an apartment syndication, 10 to 50 units in Metro Austin or San Antonio. And I've kind of been talking to people. I'm part of a mastermind that does multifamily, David Tupin. I don't know if you know him. He's a great syndicator in Austin. And yeah, that's, that's my plan. 7,000 in passive income so I can be financially free by the age of 26. What is the best piece of advice you can give a new real estate investor listening to the show today? I feel like with this, it's just to get out of your comfort zone. If something scares you, then do it right away. Because it's just about having unwavering faith over fear. I really believe in that. Something really scares you like real estate investing, start learning about it and start doing what scares you. Start networking with people. Do like the three second rule. Don't think about it. Count to three and have something done by that time. So just having unwavering faith over fear, that's very important. Andres, thanks for coming on the show and sharing your story. I think it's not only inspiring, but also educational. I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of value from it. For those listening that are interested in learning more from you and connecting with you, where is the best place for them to go? So you guys can go on Facebook, Andres Bustamante, or on Instagram, Andres Busta, B-U-S-T-A-T-X. Feel free to reach out. Also have a Austin house hacking blog that you can look at. I'll be sure to put a link to those different resources in the show notes so everybody listening can go check them out. 
Andreas, thanks so much. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate it. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.